Before we pray, I want to invite you to join us on Wednesday evening at House of Prayer. Ron Whited was chairing our Spiritual Life Committee this week. And Ron said, you know, Dwight, you think about it, we've got three worshiping communities on this campus, and Pioneer is the only one that's offering a Wednesday night prayer gathering. I was down at uh, Houston, Texas, over the holiday with GYC, 7,500 Seventh-day Adventist young adults. And I heard speaker after speaker get up. And I'm saying to myself, you go, good on you. Speaker after speaker get up and say, hey guys, when you go home, you want to make a difference in the local church, go to prayer meeting. And I want to repeat that here because we've got young adults from churches all over this nation, all over the world, I understand. But if you want to make a difference in the local church on this campus, show up at prayer meeting. I was delighted with all those who came last Wednesday night, and we hadn't even made the pitch yet to you students now that you're back for the uh, new year. We're committed to 45 minutes from 7 o'clock to 7.45. We were out of there at 7.45. But there is no question that we're living on the edge of eternity, and as the choir just sang, soon I will be done with the troubles of the world. Jesus is coming soon. We can, we, can, we can say, oh, well, maybe not. Well, I'm not sure. Forget it. We have to live with that passion as the New Testament did, red hot. Jesus is coming soon. And we cannot be lone rangers on the, on the cusp of eternity. So here's my deal. Here's my invitation. Would you be willing to give 45 minutes of your busy Wednesday? I know how busy you are. But would you be willing to get 45 minutes? Come over here. Come over and join us in collective praying. A friend of mine sent me a quotation written a century ago. Sent me the quotation this week. Last night late, I, I uh, tweeted this quotation. I want to share it with you. And by the way, if you, want to follow the, if you want to follow the tweets, I'll remind you on Wednesday, it's House of Prayer Day. At Dwight K. Nelson. So here's the line I tweeted last night. Here's the quotation written a century ago. The promise of the Holy Spirit is made on condition that the united prayers of God's people are offered. Now listen, here's the dynamite. And in answer to these united prayers, hold on to your pew, there may be expected a power greater than that which comes in answer to private prayer. Collective prayer, a greater power unleashed through collective prayer than private prayer. So you can be a Lone Ranger in that dormitory room, you're a faculty member, a community member, be a Lone Ranger in your home. And God honors your private prayer. But I'm telling you what, ladies and gentlemen, there is a greater power unleashed when we come together. So end of commercial. But I am earnestly inviting you, please, for the sake of the power that God will unleash, not just for the sake of you sitting in that chair as we fill up the youth chapel as we did Wednesday night. It's for the sake of the power that will be unleashed because your prayer is bound like a strand in a laser. The more strands in a laser, the more that beam can penetrate. So come and add your strand, please. Wednesday night, right here. You'll be out of here at 745. Rain or shine or snow. I want to pray with you now and then plunge into our teaching today. Dear God, soon I will be done with the troubles of the world. Oh, God, don't let us lose that sense of the imminence of Christ's return. What a way to begin the new year with the reminder we are living on the eve of eternity. That's why we're here. We could have stayed in bed today, but we're here. Teach us now while we are here. Speak to us. Let the, let the Word today empower us for a new year, uncharted journey that we share together. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Now, I'm going I'm to just 
be candid with you right now. I have caught myself wondering at times, I don't know if you ever do this, but I have caught myself wondering, do you suppose that Jesus has some people he feels especially close to? Some men, some women, some young adults, some teenagers, maybe even some children that he he feels drawn to more than the others. Because I'm reading about Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and I'm thinking, you know, I love being with the Lord as you do, but I, I wonder if the Lord loves being with me. Does he say, hey guys, listen... Don't interrupt me right now. I need to be alone with Dwight for a while. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Does he love being with you? And so I pull out Desire of Ages, which I hope you'll read this new year. I pull out Desire of Ages on this chapter of, of Lazarus and Mary and Martha, and I came across a quotation, and I want to share it with you. By the way, you can go to, uh, you can go to your uh, iTunes store. You can get an app. Listen to this. You can get an app three letters long. E-G-W. All right? Go to your iTunes store. Get that app. Everything ever written right here at the touch of a finger. So I'm looking at Desire of Ages. And this is what? Page 524 in Desire of Ages. But I have it right here on this little smartphone. Listen to this. The Savior blessed all. The Savior blessed all who sought His help. There was nobody He turned away. He blessed everybody. He loves all the human family, but, listen to this, but to some, he is. Now, that doesn't say to some, he was when he was here. Listen up. To some, he is bound by peculiar, p- peculiarly tender associations. It's a hard word to say, but what it means is uniquely close associations. To some, he is bound by peculiarly tender associations. Wow. I'd love to, I'd love to be somebody that Jesus wanted to be with this new year. Wouldn't you? Because the fact of the matter is, one of these days... Time lasts long enough. I'm going to need the same miracle that Lazarus got. You know what I mean? I'm going to need to be raised, and maybe you too. So on this new year, on the cusp of a new year together, let's go go to the fourth gospel. Go to the story of Lazarus in the gospel of John, chapter 11. John, chapter 11. The longest single narrative in the fourth gospel outside of Calvary the longest narrative without any teaching in it, extended teaching, outside of the story of Calvary. We begin a brand new series today. I put the, uh, put the uh, title slide on the screen for you, a brand new series entitled The Last Days. The last seven days of Jesus on this earth. We're going to spend an entire semester in those last days, those last seven days. Open your Bible to John chapter 11. In fact, let's do two things. Leave that screen up, please. Let's do two things at once. Grab your study guide. This is the first study guide of the new year, our new journey. Pull that study guide out. If you didn't get a study guide, ushers, thank you right now. Move down the aisle. You're going to want this study guide. There's some quotations there that are keepers. Thank you for braving the snow and coming out today. Those of you who are live streaming wherever you are in the nation, we've got, uh, what do we get, about eight, ten inches? Do we get that much? Eight or ten inches of snow. And so thank you for braving the snow to come out today. Hold your hand up. Our ushers all the way up in the balcony, overflow, wherever. They'll make sure you get that uh, study guide. And those of you who are watching on television, we've got the screen up now, but you can see it there, www, that's our website, .pmchurch.tv. Go to that website. The series that's beginning right now is entitled The Last Days. Here's the title of today's teaching, How to Get Resurrected This New Year. How to get resurrected this new year. Hang on to that study guide. We're going to fill it in in just a moment. But we need to plunge into this narrative together. Let's go. John chapter 11. New King James Version here. You didn't bring, you didn't bring a Bible? This, is, this, this narrative is so dramatic. Let me give you a page number, and you can uh, track along in that pew Bible. It'll be page 723. In your pew Bible, page 723, John chapter 11, verse 1. Now, a certain man was sick, Lazarus. Actually, it's a Hebrew name. It's Eleazar. 
It's Eleazar, it means God is my help. But in the Greek, it turns out, comes out as Lazarus. Now, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. Verse 2, it was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair. John's readers at the end of the first century, they already know about this Mary. It's the next story coming up. In fact, it's our story next Sabbath of perfume and tears and grumpy old men. Don't miss that teaching. So John is, is saying, hey, hey, guys, I know you've heard about Mary. This is the same Mary who wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Now notice verse 3. Therefore the sisters sent to Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. There are some Christians today, and I've seen their preachers on TV, who are proponents of the health and wealth gospel, so-called because they teach that if you love God with all your heart, and you have enough faith, you will be both healthy and wealthy. So buy my book and I'll show you how. I wish those preachers and their followers would linger extra long over this desperate message sent by Mary and Martha, Martha to Jesus. The one, Jesus, the one you love, is sick. Because as it turns out in this life, you can be very close to Jesus. You can end up being his very best friend and you can still be taken down by disease, by a condition, something that incapacitates you. And as the story tells us, you can eventually die and still be a friend of Jesus. So don't you let anybody come along and tell you, hey, you know what, girl? Hey, boy, if you only had more faith, if you were closer to Jesus, he'd be doing something in your life right now. Rubbish. Look at the story of Lazarus. They were like this peculiarly tender association. Living in the land of the enemy, that's the price the friends of Jesus have to pay. That's what's up. All right, keep reading. Verse, four, verse 3 again. Therefore the sisters sent to Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. And when Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Can you believe that, Jesus? You just said that in chapter 9 when you came on that blind man. You said, oh, he wasn't, he, he's not blind. He wasn't born blind because of his sins. This is for the glory of God. Now you're saying your best friend is sick and it's all for the glory of God and that you get glorified. I tell you what, Lord, if that's how the glory of God works, pass me by. I don't need that glory. Craig Keener, the New Testament scholar, in his commentary, tells us what's going on with these words of Jesus. I put the words on the screen. They're in your study guide. You'll have them. Look at this. Keener writing, Lazarus's sickness and raising also lead to and prefigure Jesus' own death and resurrection. And so the promise of Jesus' glorification through Lazarus's death constitutes a double entendre. You can, be, you can take it two ways. Watch this. Jesus is glorified not just because Lazarus got raised to life. I mean, that would be a huge glorification. Hey, listen, I am that I am. Now you know. I can raise a man back to life. That would be a huge glorification. But this is a double entendre. So, what's he saying here? Jesus is glorified because, here's the second side of the coin, Lazarus's raising leads directly to Jesus' arrest and his own death, his passion, by which Jesus will be glorified. The, gospel, the fourth gospel is absolutely clear. The, the summation of all glory to Jesus comes atop Calvary. That's the ultimate glorif glorification. And so immense will be the hatred of the religious hierarchy after the resurrection of Nazareth. Uh, the resurrection of Lazarus, excuse me. So immense will be that hatred. It will lead to Jesus' execution in just days from here. But John is wanting us to say, hey, listen, now, don't, don't think that Jesus is cold and calculating here. And he says, well, who cares if Lazarus died? I'm going to be glorified out of this. No, John inserts. doesn't even feel like it's the right place for this, but he inserts it into his narrative, verse 5. Now, oh, by the way, I need you to know this, John says. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. You need to know they were very close like this peculiarly tender association. So, verse 6, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, can you believe this? He stayed two more days in the place where he was. 
I mean, come on, Lord, you love them dearly, so why don't you choose to hurry to their anguishing sides and comfort them at least while he's dying? Something wrong with this picture, wouldn't you say? Oh, no, says Elizabeth Talbot. No, 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 no. There's nothing wrong with this picture at all, and I, and I love the way she puts it. This is in her little book, delightful little book, Jesus 101, John, God Made Flesh. By the way, Elizabeth Talbot is a powerful preacher. She's a Hispanic preacher in our community of faith. We ended up at the Arizona camp meeting this year and the Oregon camp meeting, and I tell you, she's one of the most powerful preachers of any gender I've heard in our community of faith. So if she ever comes to town, cross the street, please, and listen carefully. Anyway, she wrote this, and I got, I got a chance to get acquainted with her this summer. And her testimony is here. Put the words on the screen, please. How strange, she writes. I mean, it doesn't make sense to say he loved, so he delayed. Or does it? Obviously, it isn't the lack of affection that delayed the Son of God. So what was it? I have come to trust God's timing, her testimony now, even though I usually don't understand it. In fact, I have a motto that has helped countless times. Here's her motto, and you have to fill it in. Delays are designed to show the magnitude of the miracle. Write that word magnitude in. You know what, folks? If we always got what we wanted from God when we wanted it from God. I mean, what is the miracle in that? Delays are designed to show the magnitude of the miracle. Some of you right now, 14 days into the new year, you're already experiencing a delay. Something is stirring your heart up. You are troubled. And you've been begging God all through the holiday. You've been begging him, won't you do something, Jesus? Step into my life. And you know what? It appears nobody in heaven is listening at all. I want you to lock this little thought into that heart of yours that it could be that this delay is intentionally designed to heighten the magnitude of how God is going to respond in your life. So the point is, don't quit praying. Do not stop praying. Dark hour for you right now. I love this. Desire of Ages. On the chapter on Lazarus, you'll have to fill this in as well. Put it on the screen, please. To all who are reaching out to feel the guiding hand of God, the moment of greatest discouragement is the time when divine help is nearest. Can you believe that? When you are the most discouraged. I had somebody in my office in between services. Her heart is shattered. In the moment of your greatest discouragement, divine help is nearest. You will look back with thankfulness upon the darkest, write that in, the darkest part of your way. Someday. Not now. Oh, no. It's, it's awful now. It is painful now, but someday you look back because you realize Jesus drew especially close to me then. So in the darkness, you hang on. When God does respond, you'll see the, magn- you'll see the magnitude of his miracle. So anyway, Jesus, Jesus delays for two more days. Not a word about Lazarus, not a word about Mary, not a word about Martha. And then after two days are up, Jesus says, hey, guys, let's go back to Judea. And the disciples who have totally forgotten about Lazarus, Mary, and Martha cry out, Lord, you, you can't be serious. They just tried to stone you in chapter 10, which they did days earlier. There's a death threat on him. Jesus picks it up. Verse 9, Jesus answers the disciples. Look, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. My time is not up yet. There's still light left. But, verse 10, if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. We got to go. We must go now. These things he said. And after that, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. His disciples said, they're always taking him literally. Then his disciples said, look, Lord, if he's sleeping, he'll get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. A, A sick person needs his rest, Jesus. We'll just leave him. We'll stay out of Judea. We'll leave him. Let him sleep. Then Jesus, verse 14, said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Isn't that stunning? Can you believe that? For the Word made flesh. Would you jot this down? For the Word made flesh. What is death but a sleep? 
a dreamless sleep from which you can be awakened one day. That's what he's telling his disciples. That's what he's trying to teach you and me. You may fall asleep gradually. Sometimes death approaches that way, just incrementally. You may fall asleep gradually in a prolonged illness, or you may fall asleep suddenly, as Dean Val Phillips did, just like that. You may fall asleep violently. It doesn't matter how you die. It'll be asleep. But I am going, he said. Our friend Lazarus is asleep. But I am going that I might awaken him. I am going that I might awaken him. You know, I, when I had the, the, uh, my unexpected surgery back in March last year, they wheeled me into the operating room in Lakeland Hospital. And I tell you what, there are wonderful doctors and, and nurses there. And, and a cheery nurse, once we got into the uh, surgical amphitheater, a, cheer, a cheery nurse announced to me that it was time now for me to go to sleep. She said, just, it's just going to be in a matter of, you know, it, was, it wasn't like 60, 59, 58. It was, she said, we're now going to let you go to sleep. And I'm telling you what, guys, it, ju- it just, boom, you're gone. I was dead to the world. We use that phrase, don't we? I was dead to the world. I knew nothing. I saw nothing. I felt nothing. I heard nothing. Except the very next, the very next thing I heard was another cheery nurse saying, hey, Dwight, 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 wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up. And when my eyes opened and I realized I was awake, I didn't know if that surgery had been two hours or 20 hours or two days. Zero concept of the passage of time. Isn't that right? Zero. Boom. And all of that time in between. When Jesus intentionally embraces the sleep metaphor, and by the way, he used it in the Old Testament again and again. When Jesus, and in the New Testament it's used, when when the Bible uses the sleep metaphor, we know from that metaphor that for all who die, the space between their death and the return of Christ is compressed into a single split second. Just like that's it. You're here, you're here. There's nothing in between. You have nothing to fear about death. There won't be some lingering, haunting, dark... No, there's nothing. It's just like that. That's what Jesus is telling us. It's the greatest truth about death that is not being taught in this world today. It's the greatest truth about death that is not being taught in this world today. Would the word be taught? Oh, when I, when, when I get older, I'm going to school, and then I'm going to figure that one out. I like the way my friend Cliff Goldstein, in a column he wrote last summer, and I spotted this column, and I said, boy, Cliff, spot on. Here we go. This is last summer, Cliff's, Cliff's column. Put it up on the screen for you. He writes for the uh, uh, column for the Adventist Review. You see the words on the screen there. Whether Abel, the first recorded dead man, or whether the last saint to perish before probation closes, before Jesus returns, or whether the untold number of deceased in between. So you got Abel over here, the last person to die, and everybody in between. As far as all the dead are concerned, Jesus comes instantly. Would you write that word down? Jesus comes instantly. There is no waiting. There is no... Uh, lingering. It's, it's instantaneous. I tell you what, it doesn't get any better than that. The next instant, you're awake again. Like surgery. What's not to like about that? Wow. So keep reading. Our eyes close in death, and our next sensation, whether after five millennia or five minutes, is Christ's return. Abel's experience will be the same as everyone else's who has died in faith. So what does Jesus say? Our friend Lazarus is dead, but I am going to awaken him. And so then they come striding into that little village of Bethany only to discover that Lazarus has already been dead for four days. Pick it up in verse 20. Martha hears. So now Martha, verse 20. As soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, and by the way, with a death threat over your head, there's no way you're going to show up in the middle of that crowd, not until the last second. So he's lingering in the shadows of Bethany. She goes to him. Now Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, how many times have you heard these words? Wept. 
You've wept him, maybe. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Where were you, Jesus? We were begging you. We had prayer groups pleading with you. Why didn't you come? Why did she have to die? Lord, if only you had been here. But even now, she goes on in verse 22, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again, Martha. No hint about today, by the way. No, your brother will rise again, Martha. Oh, Martha shoots back to him in verse, verse 24. Oh, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am, verse 25, I am, I am the bread of life. I am the water of life. I am the light of the world. I am the vine. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Does that mean never die? No, Lazarus just died. It's not dying forever and ever. He that believes in me shall never die. Do you, Martha, believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Martha discreetly sends word to Mary to quietly leave. Don't bring the crowd. But they see Mary leave and they follow. Verse 32, And when Mary came where Jesus was in the outskirts of Bethany, and she saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, Lord, if you had been here, same, same poignant confession, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Eyes swollen red with tears, she sobs. Verse 33, therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. These are deeply emotive, pathos-laden words in the Greek. He groaned in his spirit and was troubled, and he said, Where have you laid him? And the sister said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. I scribbled at the top of this page in my Bible. You can do the same now that you have it in your study guide. The words of the poet William Blake, Till our grief is fled and gone. Speaking of those two words, Jesus wept. Till our grief is fled and gone, He doth sit by us and moan. The word made flesh weeps. Jesus wept. You know, we hurry by those two words too quickly. A writer I can no longer remember. I, I don't know who wrote this, but the lines will not leave me. It goes like this. When Jesus wept, the ground of all being shook when Jesus wept. We had the joy this morning in first service of watching one of Randers University students, a Hindu, Accept Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior and be baptized into Christ. It was a beautiful moment. I need to tell you, as I told Ashu, then sitting back here in the congregation, Christianity is the only religion on earth where the God enters into the immensity of his children's suffering. Desire of Ages draws the veil aside to show us how deep this suffering was in those two words, Jesus wept. Let me put uh, Desire of Ages on the screen. You'll have to fill this one in. But it was not only because of his human sympathy with Mary and Martha that Jesus wept. In his tears, there was a sorrow as high above human sorrow as the heavens are higher than the earth. 
The weight of the grief of ages was upon him. He saw the terrible effects of the transgression of God's law. He saw that in the history of the world, beginning with the death of Abel, the conflict between good and evil had been unceasing. Looking down the years to come until, until your day and mine, he saw the suffering and sorrow, tears, death, that were to, be a, were to be the lot of all of us. His heart was pierced with the pain of the human family of all ages and in all lands. The woes, now get this, the woes of the sinful race were heavy upon his soul and the fountain, jot that word in, and the fountain. Jesus didn't put a little hanky on and say, I am so, oh, I'm just so sad. This isn't a little tear that trickles down the corner and he quickly brushes it away so nobody sees he's crying. And the fountain. He bursts into tears. There is this heaving, sobbing. He's not just sobbing for Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He's sobbing for you and me, for the whole suffering human race. And the fountain of his tears was broken up as he longed to relieve all our distress. Wow. Jesus wept. And because he did, there's hope for the likes of you and me. Verse 38, then, then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And just as soon as he says, take away the stone, older sister Martha, she has jumped between Jesus and the stone, and she's motioning her servants back. Don't you touch that stone. She says, Lord, what did I just tell you? Look at her words. Lord, by this time, there is a stench, for he has been dead for how long, congregation? How long has he been dead? Four days. This is the second time in this narrative that, that the reader has been reminded it is four days. Do you know why the four days are critical? Because as Craig Kinner reminds us, among Palestinian Jews at the time of Christ, there was this little bit of folklore that after a person deceased, which is a pleasant word for died, the person, the soul of that individual hung around for three days until decomposition begins to set in. It takes about three days in that warm climate. So for three days, just in case, that, that soul hangs around. But when the third day's up, according to the local tradition, it's gone. Decomposition is too, too much in progress. And so when Martha, and by the way, she does it in a loud voice so that everybody hears, when Martha announces that the stench has already arisen because of Lazarus's decomposition, it is a certain announcement to everybody here that this miracle will not be gainsaid by a bit of silly folklore or local tradition. The man is dead, dead. the fourth day. And Jesus fires back to Martha, who stops the order. Jesus said to her, didn't, didn't I say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Take that stone away. Then they took away the stone, verse 41, from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes, and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me. And because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, megalephone in the Greek, which means a megaphone. This is a shout. He cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Loose him, let him go. Death, be not proud. Loose him, let go of him. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me 
Though he dies, yet shall he live. She who believes in me, though she dies, yet shall she live. With incontrovertible evidence, Christ has now proven his claim to be almighty God in human flesh. He has raised a man dead four days. Not an hour, not a day, four days. Decomposition has set in and he raised him. Wow. And with a little bit of sanctified imagination, it really isn't hard to imagine and picture, is it? The glorious pandemonium that explodes around that grave-clothed corpse who would tiny those steps. I mean, you can't come striding out. You just come out to the mouth of that cave. Maybe with that cloth over his face, he's calling out, would somebody unwind me, please? Desire of Ages concludes the chapter with these words. Look at this. Lazarus is set free. He's all unwrapped. And he stands before the company. I love this. Not as one emaciated from disease with feeble, tottering limbs. He stands as a man in the prime of life, in the vigor of a noble manhood. His eyes beam with intelligence and with love for his Savior. Look at those eyes. They are locked on each other. You can see, you can feel the love. And then a detail that the gospel writer did not include. He casts himself in adoration at the feet of Jesus. Sooner we'll be done with the troubles of the world. What else will we do on that great getting up morning when we come rising out of the dust of the earth? What else will we do but cast ourselves at the feet of this same life giver in adoration, bow down and worship him? Desire of Ages concludes... The beholders at first are speechless with amazement. Then there follows an inexpressible scene of rejoicing and thanksgiving. The sisters receive their brother back to life as a gift of God and with joyful tears. They're trying while they're greeting Lazarus. They're brokenly expressing their thanks to the Savior. But while brothers, sisters, and friends are rejoicing in this reunion, Jesus withdraws from the scene. And when they look for the life giver, he is not to be found. The end. Let me conclude with two fascinating facts. Fascinating fact number one. Did you know that in John's Gospel, Jesus' public ministry begins with a miracle in public and it ends with a miracle in public. It begins at the happiest of human events at a wedding where Jesus turns the water into wine and it ends at the saddest of human gatherings, a funeral where Jesus turns death back into life. A miracle in the beginning at a wedding, a miracle at the end at a funeral. Because when Jesus is in your story, a miracle is in store for you. When Jesus is in your story, would you jot that down? A miracle is in store for you. So what's the miracle that's in store for you this new year? Could it be a resurrection? He said, oh, do I look at it? I'm not, I hardly need a resurrection. I'm very alive and well. Let, let me rephrase the question. Is there anything in your life right now that is dying? Something down deep inside of you that is ebbing away in spite of all the CPR that you've been administering to keep it living? Could be a relationship that's dying, a friend, a, a lover, a child, a parent, right before your eyes, that relationship is dying. Could be a marriage. And in spite of all the resuscitation you've been pouring into that marriage, it's slipping away while you watch with heartbroken disbelief. Could be an ambition. An ambition you've clung to for years, hoping against hope that the right opportunity for that ambition might yet present itself. But after all this time, it has finally occurred to you, you know what? That opportunity is never coming to you, sir. And it dies in your heart. Is there something, anything in your life this new year that is dying? Could be your academic dream. The major you had always hoped 
to successfully conquer. But your grades last semester have made it more than clear that the dream is dead. You'll have to change your major. You'll have to find another career. Maybe it's your own health that's dying. Try as your doctors and you have done. You just can't turn it around and death seems inevitable. Perhaps it's your faith that is on its deathbed and all the gritting and all the straining and pretending is not able to resuscitate the faith that you grew up in. Could that be one of the miracles that God has in store for you this year? I suppose it could be. But what if, now listen carefully, what if, what if what is dying, what we want to have resurrected, isn't what needs to be resurrected? What if Jesus has stayed away just long enough for that which is dying in me to die in me, be it my health, my ambition, my dreams, my marriage, what if he stays away in hopes that with that dying, I might turn to him as I never would have had that which is dying not died in me? Does that make sense? Do you follow this line of brooding? What if? What is dying is not what needs to be resurrecting right now. As important and as precious as that is to you and to me. What if, as it was with Martha, what Jesus longs to resurrect most is an unshakable trust, an unbreakable bond with him. So that, now get this. So that he allows, he allows that particular death in me so that he might resurrect that particular part of me in a whole new way. He allows that ambition to die in me that he might resurrect an ambition to live for him. He allows that relationship to die in me so that he might resurrect a relationship to live for him. He allows that dream all my life. I have been hoping and praying and now the dream is dead. He allows it. He stays away just long enough for the dream to die so that he might raise to life a new dream with him. A miracle at the beginning, a miracle at the ending, because with Jesus in the story, the point is, apparently, there's a miracle in store for you. Fascinating fact number two. Archaeologists, listen to this. Archaeologists have discovered a burial cave in Bethany that dates back to the time of Christ. And inside that cave, as they examined the walls, they discovered a list of names that were carved into those walls. And as they carefully read through those names, they came upon three that appear together. Mary, Martha, and Eleazar, which in the Greek is Lazarus. Dust is all that remains of their remains. And I don't know who died first this time, Martha or Mary or Lazarus. But you know what? you and I can be absolutely certain that when those three siblings, those three friends of Jesus, one by one died, every single one of them died with the unassailable truth in her heart, in his mind, that this same Jesus, their friend and Savior, will one day return to this same Bethany cave. And in the same voice, they heard him shout out that afternoon, will cry forth, and two sisters and one brother will rise from the dust to life with him forever and ever. Amen. And that, my friend, is the miracle that is in store for you too. If Jesus is in your story, too.
Oh, God. Could it be this same miracle is in store for us? We began by wondering, wouldn't it be something? Become a friend of Jesus. Someone he, he wants to spend time with. Here we are. A collection of dreams that have died and ambitions that are dead. Plans that have changed. Relationships beyond resuscitation. Here we are on the cusp of this new year. Oh, Father, please, for us all, may Jesus be the resurrection and the life. Raise back to life that which will bind our hearts with the life giver. Please, Father, I humbly pray. And while every head is still bowed in prayer, I need to make an invitation. If you wish, if you want for Jesus to be in your story, this new year. And you wish to make your life available, your story available to him. Would you be willing to go on record before heaven itself and offer to God that gift. I'm really wrestling over this. So I'm going to go ahead. If there's somebody here who needs to give himself, who needs to give herself to Jesus, as an invitation for him to become the miracle of her story, of his story. And you've not given yourself to Christ before. I'm wondering if you'd be willing to just stand where you are. And by standing, declare your life open to the life giver this new year. If you've never given yourself to Christ before and you'd like to make your life available to him, would you stand where you are praying right now? God bless you. This is not a call for general rededication. But you would like, you know, Dwight, I just, I just want to start this year different. I just, I need to. And if opening my life to Christ is what I need to do, then I, I, I seize this moment and I offer to him that life. Is there anyone else? You wish to stand by standing, say, Jesus be the miracle in my story this new year. I take you. I wish to walk with you. God bless you. God bless you. You're not coming to a church. You're not coming to a preacher. But I can't close the Bible 
without giving you an opportunity as well to invite Jesus to possess this new year as he never has in your past. You're coming to him for the first time. Is there anyone else that wishes to offer up your life to the life giver? And how about the rest of us? Would you like to join me in declaring to heaven my life is available for Jesus to be the miracle of my story this uncharted journey in 2012. And I stand to offer my life to be a friend of this same Jesus. And to those of you who stood first, twenty minutes with any of the four gospels that you pick, one story a day this new year. You envision Lord Jesus in that story, and you ask him, Lord, how does this story direct my day? I promise you, the life giver will meet you every single morning and bring to you what your heart most deeply needs from him. One story a day, 20 minutes at the beginning of each new day, starting tomorrow morning. The rest of us could also be richly blessed by that same discipline. Holy Christ, we stand. And I thank you for these who stood first. Honor him. Honor her. We stand and humbly ask that as we embark on this new year, you would be the miracle of our story for your glory and for our peace and hope and faith, we pray. Amen.